Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Barry Brendan, uh, pastor of Adult Ministries here. It's an honor to be with you today to bring God's word to you. A special shout out to my wife, Ginny. We're celebrating our anniversary today. So, uh, yeah. You know, we, uh, I was thinking, though, of my family and my family's roots. And um, I just visited with my cousin a few weeks ago who uh, came back from a trip to Northeast Montana where he was exploring our family's roots. And it turns out that uh, my granddad was born there in Northeast Montana, a little community. And uh, his dad moved there uh, and got 40 acres. He homesteaded 40 acres out on the prairie with his brother. And uh, I looked in weather.com today, it's zero degrees and 20 below at night in December. I don't know how they made it, but uh, they, uh, they farmed that land. And then when my granddad uh, got of age, he moved out and uh, traveled to uh, the Snoqualmie Mill, where he was a millwright. He uh, operated the machinery there. And um, they settled in a small town there across the river called Meadowbrook. Now, uh, Meadowbrook had it was a community, a theater, a stores, a drugstore, every place, uh, and it was it was a thriving community. Well, when my dad was eight, the, the place uh, their place burned down, and so the company invited them to company housing, which was across back across the river, just above the mill, and so that's what I remember is uh, that's where my dad grew up, basically was in the company housing. There was about 60 homes uh, just above the mill there. There was a store, community center, library, school. I mean, it was a thriving community back then. You know, I was, uh, I was thinking though, but what's happened to those places now? Well, the place in Northeast Montana, all that's left is the foundation of the school and an old piece of rusty playground equipment and a sign bearing the name of the town. That's it. All the rest is windswept prairie. What about Meadowbrook? Today, Meadowbrook does not exist. It's gone. Again, the only thing that remains in Meadowbrook is a a street sign in the town of Snoqualmie bearing that name. Well, what about the company housing? All of those 60 homes and all that community center. Well, in the early 60s, Weyerhaeuser moved every single one of those homes away. Some of them actually you'll see as Gilman Village was started in those days. And um, all the buildings were bulldozed. If you were to uh, go to the old mill, which the remnants still are there, and look up on the hillside where that community was, you would see nothing but trees and overgrowth vegetation. It's all gone. There's not even a trail I checked (laughs) or a road. It's all forested and overgrown. Nothing's left. Well, what about my mom's side? So we traveled down to Southeast Idaho, hoping to see some remnant of my mom's uh, early roots. And my aunt, my mom's only surviving sister, took us on a tour. Down Emigration Canyon, this windy road, we pulled off the side of the road. We went up on this hill, walked up the other side, and then down the other side of this. It was a forested hill, all just all vegetation. 
And there was a concave area in the side of the hill. And my aunt pointed there and she said, that's where they settled. And I'm thinking, really? They dug into the side of the hill and then erected a roof overhead. Basically, they were modified cave dwellers. That's all that, and there's nothing that remained. <laughs> you know, Psalm 103 is so true. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes, and the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. Well, today we're going to be looking at the roots of Jesus, you know, where he is from. And uh, we're going to be uh, looking at a prophecy, really, uh, of Micah that was prophesied 700 years before Jesus' birth. Um, and what was going on at the time of Micah wrote this? What did the words mean to the people who that first heard them? Uh, so turn with me, if you would, to Micah chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. In the, in the Bibles in the racks of the, of the chairs in front of you, you'll find it on page uh, 826. That's if the uh, Christian Standard Bible that you have there. But... Um, We'll be focusing on verses one through five of chapter five. It says this. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. And one will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. Well, Micah wrote these words in uh, probably between 730 and, and 700 B.C., uh, at the same time, actually, the prophet Isaiah, uh, King Ahaz, and later uh, King Hezekiah uh, reigned. Uh, these were hard times for Judah. Uh, what was happening, uh, the destruction of the 10 tribes in the northern kingdom was occurring by Assyria. And uh, later, Assyria invaded even in, down into, into Judah. They captured 46 cities there, but they stopped just short of capturing Jerusalem, basically because of the prayers of King Hezekiah. Uh, you know, King Sennacherib was the king of Assyria at the time, and we have his writings. He was boastful. He never admitted defeat. If you read in 2 Kings um, chapters, I think, 18 through 25, you'll read all of this story uh, 
King Sennacherib never admitted of losing 180,000 men on the outskirts of Jerusalem and having to go back and defeat. He, uh, he never admitted uh, defeat at the gates of Jerusalem, but only said that Jerusalem was shut up like a bird in a cage. Later, Sennacherib does go back home only to be murdered by his family. So that was his end. Well, why does God allow this destruction anyway in his land? Uh, the Northern Kingdom fell under God's judgment really for a number of reasons. Uh, they had a counterfeit religion. They had counterfeit temple worship uh, in Bethel and Dan. They had counterfeit priests and uh, uh, different sacrifices. But that really wasn't what angered God the most. It was their worship of idols. In, uh, they worshiped Baal and the fertility god. They worshiped Ashtoreth uh, and set, erected shrines up on the high places worship of the stars, that was, uh, that was grounds for God's judgment. On the other hand, in Judah, under King Hezekiah, things were different. Uh, he had instituted religious reforms across Judah. Their faith was beautifully orthodox. It was right. The temple of God was cleansed. The priests were sanctified. The altars um, were erected to pagan gods, were destroyed and burned. The feasts were commanded to be observed, uh, were restored. Psalms were sung. All the praises that David instituted were, were again uh, practiced in the temple. The Orthodox faith of the Old Testament was scrupulously observed by King Hezekiah. And, and really, Judah took great pride and comfort in the notion that their faith was right. <laughs> but Micah wasn't impressed. And they were worshiping, the sure, they weren't worshiping idols in the north. But what Micah saw were hearts of pride and greed just as ungodly as the people in the north, only dressed up in different clothes. All the while, the priests and the leaders of Judah denied that anything had happened to them. I mean, what could possibly uh, happen to them since God was protecting them? And we find this in Micah chapter three. This is um, the, what the Lord says. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Micah sees the judgment of Judah, which will happen probably about 100 years later by Babylon. In chapter five, he sees Judah abandoned and then going into exile uh, into captivity until it says she who is in pain has given birth. So to understand where we get this interpretation, let's go back to the context, Micah chapter four, and read. It says verses nine and 10. Now, why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? 
Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Writhe and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon, and there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the grasp of your enemies. And that's just what happened. In ever-increasing intensity, 605 B.C., 598 B.C., and culminating in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes down from Babylon and destroys it. Uh, Instead of following the prophet Jeremiah, who was living at that time, instead of following Jeremiah's direction to to just um, let uh, the city go and surrender the city, Zedekiah, who was kind of the king in place, rebelled against Babylon, and Babylon just crushed the city afterward, destroyed the temple, destroyed the wall. Zedekiah flees with his family, only to be captured by the Babylonian army. In ancient times, actually what we read here, to strike somebody on the cheek is the greatest insult and humiliation. You can imagine what that might have meant to the people to have their leader uh, struck on the cheek. is a euphemism about that. The Babylonian army ended up capturing him, torturing him. They killed his sons before his eyes. And then they put out his eyes and took him to Babylon. Well, the prophet Jeremiah was there and he records this. He says, for a sound of lamentation is heard from Zion. How devastated we are. We are greatly ashamed for we have abandoned the land and our dwellings have been torn down. The nation was shamed and disgraced. Micah sees so many soldiers around the gates of Jerusalem that actually he calls it the city of soldiers. He describes their pain really uh, in three different places in a short section like the pain of childbirth. You know, why is that? Why, do, why does he use that metaphor? A woman in labor. I does he just say, it's gonna hurt a lot or something like that. I mean, this, this metaphor is really used throughout the Bible in the Old and the New Testament. Um, Paul says, all creation groans and travails in pain. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, awaiting the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Um, the Apostle John writes in Revelation using the same metaphor. Uh, Jesus uses the same metaphor describing uh, the Great Tribulation. And we see it throughout the Old Testament as well. Well, virtually everyone hearing this is gonna understand to some extent what that that means. It's universal. Like the birth pangs of a woman in labor, it's gonna be intense. It's gonna be increasingly painful. One's not in control of it. And there's a feeling of helplessness. And remember too, in the ancient world, Childbirth was a perilous time. Many women lost their lives in childbirth. Jeremiah says it this way. He says that we have a cry of terror. This is Jeremiah 30, starting at verse five. He says, and describing this destruction, he says, 
we have a cry of terror, of dread. There is no peace. Ask and see whether a male can give birth. Then why do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor and every face turned pale? How awful that day will be. There will be none other like it. Wow. Now, I personally don't know what it's like to be in labor. I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> but witnessing the labor and delivery of my three kids, it looked painful. And frankly, all of my coaching and hand-holding, I'm sure Jenny appreciated, but it didn't compare with the pain she was experiencing. <laughs> Once during the labor of our first child, when the contractions were the greatest, Jenny blurted out, I am not going through with this. <laughs> guys, what do you say? You know, when, when she's in pain, what, you guys would say something like, well, just run it off. No pain, no gain. Or, you know, but what would I say, you know, when your wife is saying that? I didn't know what to say, but I knew what I was thinking. I was thinking, oh, She's gonna be going through it. And that's so true. But in the end, there was a new beginning because when Joel and later Leanna and Stephen were born, it was like the greatest experience of our lives. And they placed those babies in my wife's arms. Well, pain was coming to Judah and there was no escaping it. But a great event followed, and that's what Micah writes about here. And to make sure the people understand, Micah writes here in a style that the Hebrew people understood. We're going to get into this a little bit. This is called a chiasm. It's a structure, the way they structured their writing to highlight certain truths. A sequence of ideas is presented and then is repeated back in reverse order. Uh, the result is kind of a mirror effect of these ideas culminating in the central focus. So why do that? Well, a lot of times we would only see part of it. We only see the pain, but what is God seeing? God may be seeing something completely different. Let's look. Part A. The Lord strengthens a remnant. Part B, dominion is restored. Part C, Judah and her king are humiliated. And part D, Judah's salvation and victory is, is uh, described. The main point that God would have us understand is part D. He's seeing salvation and victory and where the people saw defeat and humiliation, God was saying, look, look forward, because there's more. In the middle of pain, when it seems hopeless and disgraceful, God shouts out, look. When Judah was in the greatest pain and abandoned in exile, that pain would end with a coming of a ruler that won't let you down, that won't flee the city, but will stand. So look out. It's 700 years in the future. But so what? It's never too early to place your faith in the hope of a Savior who is coming. 
So he says this, he says, but you, O Bethlehem, he says, turn your attention this way. <laughs> Bethlehem. I can imagine what they must have been thinking. Bethlehem? You're kidding, right? I mean, why not Athens or Jerusalem or Alexandria or someplace like Bethlehem? And Bethlehem Ephrathah. In fact, he calls it Ephrathah to make sure they don't mistake the name of the place for the bigger Bethlehem, which is really up north in Zebulun. Bethlehem? It wasn't even big enough to be on the Jewish map. You don't see it listed in the list of cities in, in uh, Nehemiah and, and in Joshua. It's not there because it's insignificant. Actually, the word little here means insignificant. It was too small to be among the clans of Judah. And if you're a Jew and you're wanting victories over your enemies, would you look in Bethlehem? No. You look in places where there's fortresses and garrisons, where people are trained. All you're going to find in Bethlehem are shepherds and nomads. <laughs> I was in Bethlehem a few years ago. In fact, uh, some of you might have, might have gone with our group. Uh, and we went to the traditional site of Jesus' birth there. And um, we entered in through kind of a little doorway in this huge stone church. It's called the Church of the Nativity. And there we got into line with like 200 other people and uh, waited. And in about an hour, it was our turn to, to go. And we went down about 20 stone steps down into this kind of cave where there was a round glass seal on the floor and people were kneeling there and placing their hands on the, you know, the glass and all. And uh, behind me was kind of a little alcove. I'd say that whole place was maybe 12 by 12. Wasn't very big. And then we continued on up the staircase and out the church. That was it. Later that day, we uh, went to another site, which uh, is probably a better picture, really, of the kind of place, anyway, where Jesus was born. We entered, and this place was a little bigger. It was about 20 by 30. Our whole group fit in it without any problem at all. All I can remember about that place is that uh, I kept hitting my head on the ceiling. <laughs> but now both places had one thing in common. They were both caves. <laughs> Not only was our king born in Bethlehem, he was born in a cave. Now, most manger scenes don't even come close to this. We're just reflecting on this. It was a cave. That's it? Really? My spiritual roots began in a cave, and my ancestors' roots began in another cave. I just can't get away from this. <laughs> Should we be surprised? You know, instead, God is choosing what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, 
to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. That's the consistent story of the Bible. God repeatedly chooses the wretched, the powerless, the marginalized, right down to the places where they lived. In Genesis, he constantly bypasses the cultural norm and he chooses second sons, you know, ones without any upstanding uh, in power. He chooses Abel rather than Cain. He still chooses Isaac rather than Ishmael. He chooses Jacob rather than Esau. He chooses Joseph rather than Reuben. And when it comes to women, he doesn't choose women with cultural power or beauty or sexuality. He, he does his saving work through like, like old haggard Sarah, Leah, instead of the beautiful Rachel. He puts at the center the person and place whom the world would put in the margins. He works through a murderer called Moses to deliver his people from the greatest uh, empire in the world at that time. He chooses deliverers from the judges, Jephthah and Gideon and Samson. These are all guys from smaller tribes, low status, even social outcasts. He chooses David as king, who is the youngest and the smallest of the family. Psalm 113 says, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the trash heap, in other words, caves, in order to seat them with, nobles, with the nobles of his people. He gives the childless woman a household, making her a joyful mother of children. Hallelujah. The reason for this persistent story that we find in the Bible isn't because the authors want to tell a good story that they like underdogs. It's because they all illustrate the ultimate example of God's working in the world, which is Jesus Christ. The only founder of a major religion who was born in squalor, he died in disgrace, not surrounded by all his loving disciples, but abandoned by everybody that he loved, including his heavenly father. He died oppressed and alone, despised and rejected, and his salvation really, from start to finish, comes to us through poverty and rejection and weakness. So is it any small surprise that Jesus would be born in a cave? Bethlehem? You gotta be kidding, that's it? Yes, and a thousand times yes. Jesus came from a cave to save the world. He came from a cave to save you. He didn't come as wealthy or powerful. He came as a poor man, the child of a young unwed mother. And notice here, it says in Micah, he is coming to be a ruler over Israel for me, the Lord says. For me. Jesus um, came to be praise and the glory of God, to do his will. And Micah, by these words, the way that they were written, would reveal, would recall the announcement really concerning David made uh, to Samuel, he said, I have provided me a king, same wording, and shows this kind of relationship between the house of David and Jesus. 
This ruler would rule over Israel, not for his own sake or glory. He would rule over Israel for God's sake, for God's glory. And that's just what happened. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He said, not my will, but thine be done. My earthly roots began in a dust of a Montana desert. In the thick overgrowth of a Snoqualmie forest. But these roots, these spiritual roots that we have, they go much deeper. Because Micah says, goes on to say, that this ruler in Israel will be from his origin, from the days of old, from ancient days. The same language actually is used of David. But any Jewish reader would have picked up on that. But, but his goings forth, it says in, in, uh, in uh, literally in Hebrew, it means from immeasurable times. Immeasurable times. When is that? Well, it's, it's when time can't be measured. Who could possibly fit that description? But God himself. It's just what Isaiah said. He is Emmanuel. God with us. You know, as we shared in uh, Psalm 103 earlier, let's go ahead and finish that verse. It says this. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes, and the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, immeasurable times. That's the God we serve. Colossians 1 says that he is before all things, and by him all things consist. John 1 says that in the beginning was the word, it was the word. Past tense. There was something past tense at the very beginning, and that was the word of God. And the word was God. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that's been made. Jesus, kind of reminiscing in prayer with his father, said this. He said, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's from a measurable time. Jesus existed before time began. I can't get my head around that. But he did. And now he's come to earth in space and time, in Bethlehem, on a particular day in earth's history. And one day, just as real, we read that he will come to rule the nations. Here we see that, unlike this, the disgrace and the humiliation of Israel's past kings, this king will stand. He will stand. He won't run away, he won't flee. I'm gonna try something, I want you to help me with it. When I say the next few phrases, I want you to say your first name aloud, if you're comfortable in doing this, okay? Because this shepherd will stand. He will stand ready and watchful over 
good. He will stand to guide. He will stand and protect. He will stand and provide for. He will stand and intercede and defend. And he will do so in the strength of the Lord. This strength will be so irresistible and powerful that nothing will ever equal it. In that day, nothing will humiliate him or ever bring disgrace. He shall shepherd in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and the shepherd will be unlike any shepherds we've ever seen before. This one will shepherd as a king, and he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one, this one from Bethlehem, Ephrathah? Yes, and a thousand times yes. You know, as we conclude today, we ask, why did Micah write all this? Why did he go to all this detail? The people didn't end up listening to him anyway. Actually, after Hezekiah, there was King Manasseh. He went right back to worshiping idols. They didn't grasp the significance. And if they had, they would have repented and gone to the Lord and put their faith in this coming Savior. But they didn't. Instead, they went right back to worshiping idols. Micah foretold the future to awaken the people of their responsibility in the present, and that's what the purpose of the prophets are today. They're not written for our entertainment. They're written for our encouragement. So what can we learn today? Well, it doesn't make any difference. Oh, whether it's 700 years in the future or 2,000 years in the past, the answer is still the same. God wants every person on this earth to place their faith in Jesus because he is alive. So look to Bethlehem. Look away from the things that are giving you so much pain and look to Bethlehem. Turn to Jesus in your heartache and hopelessness. Jesus has a purpose for your life. You might not see it or understand it. You, all you might see is pain. But don't conclude that he doesn't know or care. And just like the pangs of childbirth, when everything around you seems hopeless, don't look down. Look out because God has a plan and that plan is a person. It's Jesus. It has been and always will be him. God came to earth. He has come to earth and been born for you. For unto you, it says, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And he is coming back to reign forever. No one, nothing will ever take you out of his hand. Number two, but you, O Bethlehem, turn to Jesus for peace. Psalm 56, 11 says, in God I trust, I will not fear. Notice that this ruler won't just bring peace. No, it says he is peace. There's a difference. He is your peace and without him, there is no peace. No political party can bring peace. No treaty can bring peace. No treasure no travel can ever bring peace. Only Jesus can give peace. In the latter days, 
we read that people will be crying out, peace, peace, but there will be no peace because they're looking in the wrong places. Because the answer is a person, and that person is Jesus. Number three, but you, O Bethlehem, turn to Jesus and admit you need help. Psalm 56, uh, 16 says, but I call to God and the Lord saves me. Our culture today, on the other hand, says, pull yourself together. You can do it. Be strong, you know, but Jesus says you can't do it. You must rely on me. He said, except you be converted and become as a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Salvation through Jesus doesn't come to the smartest, the most competent, the most able, the strongest. No, salvation Christ offers, favors the needy, the sinners, the outsiders, and the weak. So call out to him. Number four, but you, O Bethlehem, turn to Jesus and trust in him alone. You know, maybe you've bought into the idea that the Bible's full of people who lived good moral lives and somehow if I can live a good moral life, I can go to heaven too. If you believe that way, I'd say you're sadly mistaken. Perhaps you're trusting in your finances or your intellect or your strength or whatever, your good name, but whatever it is, the Bible is full of stories on the contrary where God's intervening grace is bestowed on people who don't appreciate it, don't deserve it. And even when they do receive God's grace, they they don't thank or, or appreciate him for it. Jesus came from a cave to save you, to save the world. He came from humble beginnings to save, and he came for humble hearts, really. In Micah's day, God said through Micah, place your faith in the coming Savior. Well, today the Savior has come, hasn't he? And he's coming again to rule, so trust him. Humble yourself. He doesn't want to show. He wants a humble heart. And that was the cry of Micah. We read this in chapter six. Mankind, he has told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God? That's the cry of Isaiah. This is the Lord's declaration. I'll look favorably on this kind of a person, one who is humble, submissive of spirit, and trembles at my word. This is the cry of Hosea. For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. It's the cry of Jeremiah. The wise person shouldn't boast in his wisdom. The strong shouldn't boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth, but the one should boast should boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, showing faithful love and justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. That's the cry of Joel. Tear your hearts and not your clothes and return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He relents from sending disaster. And when you turn to the Lord like that, when that becomes your cry, 
that cry will become a song. It will become a song that you'll never stop singing. It'll be a song that resembles really the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she's saying this. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you today and realizing that there's some here who are suffering from heartache and hopelessness and disgrace and humiliation and disillusionment, disappointment may now be the time that they turn to you in that, Lord, and they look to you for answers, that they look to you. Lord, many times we're seeking peace in all the wrong places. May now be the time that we take you because only in you, Father, is peace. We admit, Father, we need you. We need you more than we could ever admit. But Lord, we turn to you and say, take us, Lord, use us. We wanna trust in you alone and not in our own strength. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand?